Welcome to the Helix Center. This is the last program for uh, this season. And before I introduce uh, today's participants, uh, let me tell you, we'll be going from fear to happiness as of September 24th. Uh, watch uh, for further announcements on our website, helixcenter.org. Now today's participants, if you can raise your hand um, as I say your name, Nushin Hajikani, Associate Professor in Radiology, Harvard Medical School. Joseph Ledoux, University Professor and Henry Luce Moses Professor of Science, Center for Neuroscience and the Department of Psychology, NYU. Eric Marcus, Director of the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Francis Lee, Mortimer Sackler Professor and Vice Chair for Research, Department of Psychiatry, while Cornell Medical College, Robert Kurzban, Professor of Psychology, University of Pennsylvania. Anyone can start. <laughs> Sorry, are you gonna? No, I'm start just it? gonna wait for you to say something. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, well, I guess I'll start. So, you know, as a psychologist um, turned into a neuroscientist of sorts, um, I think any kind of psychological question, whether you're approaching it in the brain or in, in behavior, uh, always has to start from our introspections. I mean, that's our only access to our mental processes and internal states and so forth. So, you know, without being able to introspect and formulate the idea that we have a mind, that we have something called consciousness, um, we couldn't possibly study that. So there's no way that um, an organism that doesn't have that capacity to look inside its own brain and have its own ideas and formulate those, especially in verbal questions, uh, um, statements like this that allows us to say, okay, I, I'm aware that I have a psychology, a mind, and that's somehow related to my body but also seems to have some kind of separate existence. All of that is... Um, only possible because of the kind of brain um, that we have. And we don't know which other animals obviously have that because no other animal can tell us about this. So from the point of view of fear, we look into our brains and our minds and we say, what is fear? How are we going to study that in an animal or another person? And what we come up with is that, you know, we fear is a, a kind of experience we have that we're in danger. So therefore, we can study what happens when an organism is in danger and learn something about fear. Now, the way we observe scientifically the, the fear of another organism, so to speak, is through its behavior or other reactions or responses. Um, obviously, we can't go inside another person or another animal's mind. So when I study a rat, and the rat is exposed to a threatening stimulus, and it freezes. The question is, what do we call that? For the last 30-something years, I and many of my colleagues have called that fear. But when I was talking about fear, and, and many of my colleagues as well, we weren't talking about fear as the conscious experience. We were talking about it as a kind of 
inner motivational state that connects stimuli with responses. So the, the rat is freezing, or a human jumps back from a bus that's flying by before they're where the bus is there, and so forth. And when that happens, we have these non-conscious systems that allow us to do this. At the same time, when we look into our minds, we both see ourselves jumping back and feeling afraid. So it all seems to be bundled together as one thing. And that's why the most common idea about how fear is represented in the brain is that you have a kind of fear circuit or fear center that we've inherited from animals. This idea goes back to Darwin, and, or perhaps even older. And through the operation of that circuit, we both respond to danger and feel fear. I mean, that's the natural way to think about it. But as we begin to take these things apart, not so much in animal brains, because we can't really make the distinction, but in the human brain, we can begin to see that when we can create a threat by conditioning processes, expose the person to that threat, and the person will then respond to the threat. But if we present that, and the person will know the threat is there and so forth, but if we present that stimulus in a way that the person doesn't have conscious access to the stimulus, the person will still respond to the threat. So heart, the heart will race, the palms will sweat, and so forth, even though the person never saw the stimulus and claims to feel no fear. So fear can't be what's driving these responses that are controlled by this part of the brain that I work on called the amygdala. Fear is what happens when we become aware that our brain is responding in this kind of way, and a lot of other things go into the creation of the fear as well. Um, so this, and, and you can study patients who have what's called blind sight, where they're blind in the left side of space. You can present a threat there. You don't have to do, use any tricks or anything where it's presented very briefly. You can just present a threat to the left visual field, and if you're imaging the person, the amygdala will be activated and the responses will be present, but the person won't know the stimulus is there and won't feel anything. So, and I'll cut it short now. So because of this kind, this and many other kinds of pieces of information, uh, I come to the conclusion that, you know, it was really inappropriate to talk about fear when I was studying the rat's responses to threats. What I'd been studying is the operation of a defensive survival circuit that allows the rat or any other organism to detect and respond to danger. Uh, and that can contribute to the feeling of fear, but that is not one and the same as the feeling of fear. The feeling of fear in, instead, I think, is more of a kind of cortical process, neocortical process, where information about the present stimulus, memories about what that stimulus is and what it means, schemas about what kinds of emotions those are associated with and so forth, are integrated with the fact that, say, the amygdala is already being responding to the stimulus and all kinds of feedback is coming within the brain arousal and body feedback and so forth. And all of that is integrated in working memory to give rise to the feeling of fear. So that's my view of things so these the days. What's the value of making that distinction? Well, the value is, and this is going to take some more time, is that okay? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so the value of it is that for the past 50 years, the pharmaceutical industry has been attempting to develop anti-anxiety drugs. And in 2010, Glasgow SmithKline and a couple of others began saying, we can't do it. Nothing, nothing's happening. You know, we're testing rats and mice in these chambers and giving them drugs that make them less timid, uh, less behaviorally inhibited. But when we give them to people, it doesn't make them feel less fearful or anxious, or not reliably or consistently. 
So what's wrong? Well, the person, let's say a person with a social anxiety disorder on an SSRI is more likely to go to the party but still feel bad when they're there because it's not reducing the fear and anxiety at the party. It's just changing the inhibitory behavior about going to the party. So if we make this broad distinction between circuits that control these behavioral responses and circuits that generate these kinds of subjective feelings, we can begin to ask questions about therapy and how it can be approached in um, a way that's more consistent with at least the way I think about how the brain is organized. Uh, Joe, I think what you said is really crucial. I'm delighted to hear you say it because being an analyst, I believe the mind can be studied and also that the cerebral cortex in evolution is crucial. And you have just outlined that salient fact that the brain in humans is complicated, it's layered, their levels, their connections, and many of the most interesting things about mental function are probably widely distributed circuits, maybe even whole brain. And that's crucial because it may allow us to begin to correlate cerebral neurophysiology with what analysts call meaning. And meaning is a tricky thing because, one, it's mind. Number two, it may be unconscious as well as conscious. Number three, big point, it's symbolically <clears throat> represented. It's symbolically represented. And when that happens, something's happening in the brain, both in word presentations and thing presentations, that stores this meaning for us. But it isn't mind. It is brain. And as analysts, we deal with very paradoxical fear, which is called usually anxiety. Fear being something that has happened or about to happen, anxiety being something you worry about, that it might happen. And the anxieties that we look at as analysts may be unconscious in their contents, are often paradoxical. Patients fear what is not noxious for most people. Or even more so, they fear what is positively reinforcing for most people. And so we have to understand not the fear or the, or, or the, the, um, the affect generated, but the affect meaning, the affect contents. Mark Soames is here, which takes me back to Macaulay, Macaulay and Hobson who when I was a young tad, just as a, a new attending out of residency, they gave a grand rounds at Psychiatric Institute. Big news. The dream has no meaning. Why? Because the generator of the dream is in the midbrain. I got up and dared to say, you know, when I was three years old, I saw my first movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. At the end of the movie, I turned to my mom and said, Mommy, what was that? And a kindly usher says, come here, kid, I'll show you. Takes me upstairs in the back, shows me the projector. It says, that's the movie. I say, wow, that's the movie. And I thought, man, I'll never understand grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> this man over there said, you know what? They're actually wrong about the physiology of the dream. And began to show that higher cortical function is intimately involved in the dream. And that brought meaning back into the study of neurophysiology. It's a very tricky study because mind is not the same as brain. There are correlates, but the qualitative experience of mind is probably a whole brain experience. 
Consciousness is probably a whole brain experience. It doesn't mean that we can't have very useful correlations, but it does mean that as an analyst, I study mind and qualitative experience, not only event occurrences and quantitative experiences. What would you say, Lucia? Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I try to study how fear and anxiety are expressed in the brain when I do imaging of that. And, and, and that, of course, is a very artificial uh, setting because what, what we do is we put people in big machines that make a lot of noise and, and we show them stimuli and they know that nothing is going to jump on them and attack them or anything like that. <laughs> But still, we, we do see circuitry that, that gets activated for certain things. I was very privileged to once image this famous uh, blindside patient, mm-hmm. uh, GY, who was... So we were first asking him, what do you see? He said, I see nothing. I said, but just guess, decide, press left or right, whether it's this or that. He said, okay, I'll do it if you want me to do it, but I really see nothing. But his guesses were better than chance. He was, he was actually really... He was without being conscious of what he was seeing, he was seeing it. The interesting thing is it was, it was not only fear was seeing, it was also happiness, actually. Mm-hmm. It was reacting to happy stimuli as well. And, um, and so it was really amazing to see that somebody who was not conscious of something that he was perceiving was still able to show brain activation in all this circuitry that we, that we know that are involved in, in, in the perception of... of, of so you're of saying that mind. his perceptual circuits were lighting up? Yes. Yeah. And the cortex, prefrontal cortex, that so stuff? No, so not the prefrontal cortex. That's, right. that's the interesting part, is right. that it was the earlier visual areas yeah. and, and motion areas and sort of mimicry even uh, yeah. areas that were being uh, involved, but not the prefrontal and not the parietal in, in, yeah. in his case. So that was... I, and I think the prefrontal and the parietal cortex are essential for the experiential uh, feeling of the emotion. So to follow up on Joe's point, then in your human neuroimaging studies, I, I study mainly um, mouse uh, threat circuitry. So um, have you found, based on what Joe has laid out, it would seem that we should find new areas in the human brain that have not been yet figured out by optogenetics or other things within the rodent brain that are related to fear. Uh, have you, based on your sort of, I know, very laboratory-based still sort of paradigms, have you found other areas that have not yet been found in rodent brains? I, I guess all the mirroring areas are not definitely, I, I, I don't know much about rodents, I have to say. I've yes. always been new. I don't think it has to do with areas. Oh, We're talking yeah. about circuits that you couldn't okay. pick up, you know, in an, uh, in an imaging situation. And certainly the, you know, the Rat or mouse prefrontal cortex it's is very you know, different. It's very different. Yeah. Um, you know, other primates have much more similar prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. but even in the uh, even the differences between humans and non-human primates exist in terms of you know connectivity patterns mm-hmm. and and other kind of uh, subtle connect, uh, connection and, and other things that that wouldn't necessarily be you know that imaging wouldn't be sensitive to. Okay. Uh, or I mean, some of them are like the connectivity, but you know, it's there's. I I agree with what you said that I mean, my whole position has long been my my starting position, as many of our starting positions, is probably uh, from our graduate student days, and I studied uh, as a graduate student 
conscious experience in split brain patients um, and how information presented to the right hemisphere couldn't be accessed by the left hemisphere, but the left hemisphere could you know, respond to the behaviors being produced by the right hemisphere and was always generating these complex explanations of why the behavior was being produced, even though it had no idea. And so this led Gazaniga and I to the, this idea that part of the role of consciousness is to kind of tell a story about ourselves that, that sort of glues together all these random behaviors coming from all these unconscious processes, including so-called emotional behaviors. I mean, as Freud said, you know, the t consciousness is the tip of the iceberg. Most of what the brain is doing is under the radar. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I push you a little bit on that? So yeah. um, if you take the research that you were talking about at GSK, so one way to read what you're saying is not only is that research not going, not in fact, helping us understand how to suppress the feeling of anxiety, the sort of phenomenology, phenomenology of it. But one, one way to take what you're saying is it can't in principle, because the thing that we do in sort of as phenomenological beings as humans mm -hmm. is just going to turn out to be different. Right, but I, I would say it can't directly inform feelings, but obviously... In a, in a real emotional situation, unlike what we can do in humans in the laboratory, um, the feedback from all of this stuff. So, you know, there are lots of things going on. Let's put it in terms of three consequences of amygdala activation that would impact, say, working memory and its ability to synthesize all of this information. One would be direct connections from the amygdala to cortical areas. Another would be outputs of amygdala to, and I'm just using amygdala as an example, not necessarily saying that's the answer to everything. The second would be connections from amygdala to arousal circuits in the brainstem that are going to, you know, light up the brain and say something important's happened and cause attention to begin monitoring the environment, seeking an explanation, as in the old Schachter and Singer experiments where they arouse the people put them in a situation where things were happy or sad going on and the people adopted the, the emotional tone of the, the context. Because once you're in a, an aroused situation, you have cognitive dissonance. Why am I aroused? Why am I feeling this kind of tension in my brain and body? And so you seek an explanation for that. Uh, so arousal is very important. But also then there's the feedback from the body, which is the key to Damasio's theory. I think that's one part of it, but not the entire explanation of where our feelings come from. Yeah. And then there's a fourth one, right, Joe? Inhibitory tracks from the prefrontal cortex down to the amygdala. Right. Okay. Uh, well, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the newer parts don't have any connectivity with the amygdala. Very, very crucial point, right? <laughs> that it's the higher levels that do. Well, that's pretty high, dorsolateral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> prefrontal? Dorsolateral prefrontal. Yeah. No connection to the amygdala. Are there inhibitory tracks somewhere up there? back down to the amygdala. So dorsolateral and other prefrontal areas are connected to medial prefrontal areas, which do, in fact, connect okay. the amygdala. So. Okay. Yeah, so the, the, um, you know, the consequences of activating one of these defensive survival circuits, whether it's you know, a threat circuit or a feeding circuit or anything else, uh, is that changes take place widely in the brain. It creates a global organismic state within the brain and body that the body and brain, didn't have to, brain has to deal with. Now, you know, one of the reasons I, that has moved me to this more cognitive view of fear is, and other emotions is the fact, if we just stick with fear, you know, we have to be able to not just account for fear as a defensive survival response. So we can be afraid of a snake at our feet, but we can also be afraid of, uh, of um, 
uh, starving to death. And that would not be part of the defensive survival circuit. That would be a homeostatic mechanism involving low energy supplies or uh, dying of dehydration. So we begin to worry about that because our hypothalamic uh, fluid balance circuits are out of kilter or are freezing to death in the sense of failure of thermal regulation. So these are not traditional threat circuits, but yet their activity can cause us to be afraid. And we can even move beyond that to um, broader fears, such as uh, the fear of or anxiety of not leading a meaningful life or of uh, the eventuality of death, an existential kind of um, uh, threat. So a circuit, you know, if you say fear, the amygdala is the brain's fear center, is, as is often said, you can't possibly get to an explanation of both existential fear and the fear of a snake in one explanation. So it's, there's only one way you can do that. It's through a cortical processing of all these various kinds of inputs. Fear is a, a kind of construction or an assembly or an emergent property of a lot of ingredients that happen below the surface. Yeah. Now, Joe, you you have taken fear and applied it to the fear of not leading a happy or satisfactory life. An analyst would say, "No, that's anxiety." Actually, no. That's I said fear or anxiety. Ah, okay. No, my okay. in my well, book, I, I think that whole discussion about fear and anxiety is not settled because I still, no matter how much I look into it, I can't see what exactly differentiates one from the other. Uh, but that's another matter. You were going to say. Well, right. Sorry, I do. I do wonder a little bit about the extent to which these are semantic issues and to what extent they're contentful. So, for example, it seems like it could be um, that what we when we talk about the fear of not leading a meaningful life and the fear of getting hit by a train, that we're using the same word. But in fact, uh, it's not. It's going to turn out that in sort of an Aristotelian sense, we haven't carved nature at its joints properly in mm -hmm. the natural language. Uh, and so, my bias scientifically is always as a splitter as opposed to a lumper. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it seems to me as the, that it could plausibly be that there's lots of systems which if you kind of squint down, they kind of look like they're doing more or less the same kind of thing keeping us from doing it. So, for example, you know, getting us to eat when we're hungry or uh, worrying about the fact that we might not. Mm -hmm. um, but that when all is said and done, when we're all done with our work, whether we're talking about the cognitive level or the neurophysiological level, we're going to look at these things and say, oh, it actually turned out that those things were of a family in the Eleanor Roche sense, a family resemblance, but they weren't exactly the same thing, mm -hmm. right? And so, and so um, I have a fear that my microphone just dimmed. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, or were you anxious? Or I might have been anxious about it. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I agree with that. And but the the point is that so the field has been so narrowly focused on fear. I'm I'm okay. saying let's consider all the options okay. and whittle back from there rather than you know kind of just being stuck in this defensive mode where you know a snake is the canonical form of fear when we know that people never encounter snakes in New York City, and yet there are a lot of fearful and anxious people in New York. So maybe... Including fearful about snakes that they have never seen. Exactly. <laughs> well, there are also human snakes, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Much more frightening. <laughs> so uh, an analyst would say, look, if you want to study brain physiology about human fear and anxiety, you have to look at the neurophysiology of meaning. And probably that means you have to look at the neurophysiology of representation. I, I'm not sure I completely agree with what you say, because I think in some cases you can put people in a state 
chemically that will make them experience anxiety even if they have no reason to experience anxiety. So if you flow your system, for example, with thyroid hormones, your blood pressure is going up, your heart is beating, you have all these symptoms that are normally present when you experience fear, except there is no stimulus that would uh, provoke fear. And what fear. does the and person yet, say? You feel anxious. You have the deep feeling of being anxious, even if you know there is no reason to be. So, so I think that there is no meaning there, but the body is still sending a signal and, and makes us interpret yeah. whatever the signal is as anxiety. Those people who have panic attacks say, I feel like I'm going to die. Yes, but but they have that's different because they have a... a condition that makes them have Absolutely. panic attacks. What I'm telling you is if you do that to a perfectly, you know, normal, if, if there is such right, a right. thing, person, a uh, healthy uh, person who is feeling well, you mm -hmm. give them the, this medicine and mm -hmm. then suddenly they will have this huge surge of anxiety. Yeah. And that I think is interesting because, yeah. because it also shows that things can just arise from body Absolutely. signals into the Absolutely. Into the Fear chromocytoma. Yeah. Um, but often... Uh, either it's true free-floating anxiety, which is rare, or the person, even though they know it's physical, has a mental experience of it. It has a representation to it. They can say, oh, what does that feel like? Feels like I'm going to die. Feels like I'm suffocating. Feels like I'm falling. Yeah, but That's what, a crucial what does part that, uh, I'm, I'm not what sure what that tells you. Anything. I mean, you could say anything. Wait a minute, you could say anything. Ed, you're an analyst. <laughs> yes, you could say anything. But what you do say may be actually influenced by who you are, right? And the question... Maybe so, or maybe what you heard. Maybe you heard people who have panic attacks think they're dying, so when you have a panic no, no, attack, they don't you think say, oh, they're I think, I think they I'm going to be dying. They don't necessarily think they're dying. They say, it feels like they're dying. Right, but maybe and you have, you know, especially in these days, you go on the internet. It says people who have panic attacks, they think it feels like dying. And <laughs> you know? it, it doesn't matter if they say it feels happy words, like a lollipop. That's fine. We're not talking about the content, the, the specific content, but only that affect in human beings tends to have a content, and that if you want to understand the human experience of affect, you have to understand what Joe has already said that there are links between cognition and affect and physiology, and that the package deal in humans tends to be represented in that package deal. And they will express it. We call that package deal in human beings meaning, the meaning of the affect. Francis, you're a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. What do you think of that? Um, uh, it's hard to say because I'm actually a, a neuroscientist. I've, been, I've actually, it's much easier for me to think about. What I was actually thinking about as you were saying this was actually about um, the, there was a certain group of patients that were studied at the University of Iowa who basically had congenital lesions of their amygdalas. Do you, you, you're familiar with these courses. Yeah. And, and that recently there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago that if they were given some type of carbon dioxide sort of uh, um, inhalation, they actually felt for the first time a, a fearful response. Mm -hmm. we, or at least they had what well, looked like a physio... the first time. It, was... oh, it, it wasn't? Or no, no, that it was just showing that they could feel... They uh, could have a physiological response right. to... Yeah. Uh, but did you... Like, for those people, they still have... Uh, they still felt fear in some, on, on other right. things. Like, as you said, these are, are great subjects because they have thoughts that... They probably have fears that 
their life has no meaning or various other things. Mm -hmm. you know. But I mean, that's part of my argument against the yeah. idea that the amygdala is a fear center. Exactly. Because these yeah. people can have fear without an amygdala. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Even though they don't, they don't have the physiological response of whatever, of if you put them in the laboratory mm -hmm. and, yeah. and shock them and put a yellow square in front of their face, you know, and yeah. then they won't freeze or have a physiological response to yeah, that. that. Amygdala is the key to the output. Yes, those, uh, yeah. to those circuits that control those responses. So. But if you interview them, they will actually say right. if they... I mean, Liz Phelps actually, um, at NYU, uh, showed this in, with Adam Anderson, I think, in 2002. Yeah. It didn't get as much uh, attention as the, the Iowa paper did yeah. more recently, but it's the same effect that you can have. That the amygdala is not involved in the experience of these emotional responses, yeah. uh, or these emotional states, but um, only in the expression. Yeah. But I actually prefer to think of the amygdala as a relevance detector, as, as has been proposed by some people, because I think it's it's been it's present in a lot of tests that I do. For example, if I just show neutral faces right. versus objects, faces are more relevant to us because they're biological stimuli. I get amygdala activation right. even if there is no fear involved in those faces. Right. So, so I think it's it's we, we, we need to broaden our view. Yeah, we were talking about does. fear, so we talk about the amygdala, yeah, but yeah. there's a dozen parts of the amygdala take yeah. only the lateral nucleus of the amygdala. That we can divide into three parts. Uh, one that is involved in plasticity and learning, another that's involved in the transmission to other amygdala areas and so forth. So the circuitry is, I mean, in an imaging study, you can see, you know, positive and negative and all of that in, in the blob called the amygdala. But when we get into the detail, and that's why the animal studies are important, we can see the circuitry cells that will respond to positive but not negative and so forth. So mm -hmm. at, at a subtle level of microwiring, mm -hmm. there are these uh, distinctions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what it is, is, um, you know, we, I think what we have to think about is a circuit that is detecting um, uh, threats by predators versus uh, circuits that are responding to positive incentives okay. versus circuits that are responding to uh, uh, dehydration or changes in temperature. All of those are going to, you know, may overlap, but they're also going to be crisscrossing, mm -hmm. and you're not going to be able to pick that up through uh, through. You know, crude imaging technology. I'm sorry, don't it's crude. <laughs> Where it is today, but I, you know, I think the. I mean, the less usual. Crude. It's less crude. Less crude. Yeah. The less usual crude. idea is that you can. The ultimate resolution yeah. of the magnet will be somewhere along the idea of a cubic millimeter, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the amygdala is a very tricky part because you have all kind yeah. of things around that that makes it difficult. Yeah, to yeah like one of the early studies of uh, Mark Rakels that implicated the amygdala turned out to be jaw muscle that mm. rather than the amygdala. <laughs> really? I, that's but amazing. You're, you're saying something so important, which is the complexity even of the amygdala, right? The complexity of the brain and how its function is overdetermined <laughs> and multi-determined, which is an analytic concept. Welder based on Freud. And it's a basic uh, physiological uh, fact about the human brain and how it functions. Uh, I wanted to ask you something, Joe. Uh, you said that uh, people take the uh, tranquilizers and it doesn't take away their anxiety. SSRI. That's even more interesting. I didn't say... Tranquilizer. It's an antidepressant. I said SSRIs. So what about when you take actual tranquilizers, anti-anxiety medication? So okay. I mean, we get it now. We we'll get into the details. So, 
there are receptors for benzodiazepines and prefrontal areas as well as the amygdala and all over the brain. So the question is, two questions, I guess. One is, when a person is feeling less anxious on the benzodiazepine, is that because, one, the benzodiazepine has specifically reduced anxiety, or is there a more general change of emotional processing? And if it's uh, a second question would be, is it because you've changed emotional processing per se, or because you've changed the cognitive underpinnings of that emotional processing by blunting activity? You know, mm -hmm. benzodiazepines are GABA agonists, so they mm -hmm. blunt activity wherever they bind. So if you blunt cognitive processes that are involved in the assembly of higher thoughts or even fears and anxieties in prefrontal cortex, then you're going to feel less fearful or anxious. But have you done that by directly changing anxiety? <laughs> you might say, okay, as a therapist, it doesn't matter. You know, if it works, it works. That's great. But as a scientist, you want to know why it's working. And is it doing what you say it does? Because <laughs> that's what's led to billions of dollars being spent yeah. trying to make animals less timid yes. in these behavioral situations to find drugs that can make people less, feel, less fearful or anxious. What do you think, Francis, about this? I still am amazed as a, as a psychiatrist and as a neuroscientist that we don't actually know where, where the site of, or what circuit or what network is being affected by the benzodiazepines. <laughs> We've been giving them for decades. Right. <laughs> and you would think that we, there would have been a conditional receptor knockout mouse that would have been done at some point. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, that has not been. Because it, it's well, just, the, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry moves in the direction of Okay, we've got this drug. Yes. Let's get the next one. With exactly. a, you know, tweak to it. It'll make more money, right? Yeah. Uh, so they're not going to figure it out. They're not going to figure <laughs> it out. So scientists have to do that. And, yeah. But, what but I do have a clinical piece of data for you. Oh. I took once a benzo librium yeah. for a plane flight. Yes. My brother met me. Yeah. He said to my wife, the plane landed at noon. Eric landed at 1. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 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 on this. Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't only fear, a loss of fear. It was, wow, a yeah. really good feeling. While we're on the subject of, of ethics, for example, giving people drugs when yeah. we don't really know how they work for the last decades. and We, we used uh, to give people aspirin. For the yeah. same. <laughs> um, I, and on this note of social anxiety, I, I don't often have the chance to talk to yeah. people in the clinical world. So I'm interested in this story, for example, about the introvert who we medicate so that they go to parties, which they subsequently presumably are, you know, are very difficult for them, right? Because they're introverts, so they actually don't really like going to these sort of social events, right? And one way to read introversion is that's Darwin's way of saying, you know what, you should maybe devote your attention to the non-social stuff, because whatever the social stuff is doing for you is really not working out. So mm -hmm. there might be other ways. Should we should we be suppressing anxiety to the point where we get people to into situations which are subsequently going to be unpleasant, even if I may, maladaptive for them. I, is this something that we do in the clinical community? I, I was not aware. Other than I was aware that we give people all the time medications which we don't understand how they work. Yes. That's yeah. I'm cool with that. It's called being a doctor. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've, I've always I've always been impressed with my friends over in the medical community. Devoted they are to empiricism. With we haven't even known to ask that question because it's all seemed like one thing in the brain. You know, yeah. fear and anxiety, like. Yeah. Mm. Fear center, anxiety center, yeah. happiness center. But there are some things that are a touch more specific. I don't know how they work. But people who have stage fright, 
they respond to indirect. I think that has not become as uh, solid as it used to be. And also, Meaning, what response? What does that mean? The subsequent studies have not that, been as clear. Ed, the question is, what response to indirect? The tachycardia, the sweating, that the tremor, that response to indirect. They then have to say, if they can, wow, nobody can now see that I'm anxious. And the anxiety may, in certain people, fade because of that. <laughs> that or maybe because you don't get this body response, yeah. you feel better because that's you right. don't get Same all thing. the signals. But, that, right. you know, that's that's right. a, but that's the key. That, that's the previous <laughs> understanding. You're saying that, the show, that there's new sort of doubt. Right. That this is well, I, I actually think that Enderol does work because... Uh, <laughs> Did I mean, you take some before you... <laughs> no. <laughs> but if, if we have... Um, if we condition rats in a certain way yeah. that make them avoid situations, yeah. um, we find that there's a group, about 20%, that never acquire the response. Mm -hmm. But if we inject propranolol or endorol directly into their central amygdala, which controls the outputs to the freezing and all that, the animals stop freezing and start performing the response. So they can now approach the threats and, and so forth. Um, so it has this in the traditional sense, an anti-anxiety effect in terms of behavior, right? But I wouldn't call that anxiety. I would call that reduced uh, defensive behavior or reduced behavioral inhibition. Um, so the, you could, I mean, that would be consistent with the effects of Enderol given to people. You give it to them and they're more willing to go on stage and, and perform. So w whether they, I mean, and, and the, the body feedback and all of that that's suppressed, would indirectly make you feel less anxious, even if the enderol itself is not directly yeah. reducing your anxiety. I, I wanted to get your opinion. What did you think of the recent study that came out about giving, in, since we're talking about enderol, where they did, where they were conditioning humans who had a spider phobia to, and then they sort of brought up, they did a, a, essentially a reconsolidation type experiment right. where they gave the enderol during that window. Mm -hmm. Did you actually, I wonder, was this the uh, Dutch study? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to comment on that. I mean, that. There's some issues. I, I don't want to go. The ex, the exp, you mean in terms of experimental design? In yeah. general, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but apropos drugs, we don't know how they work and, and, and why they work. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this study that showed that paracetamol, which is some, something you'll take for pain, actually mm -hmm. alleviates social pain in these games where you, you know, give the ball to people and ignore them and, and so forth. And I thought that was also something that's interesting Very. in terms of circuitry is interacting mm -hmm. and, and, and crisscrossing, mm -hmm. because who would think of paracetamol as an anxiolytic drug? Do they know how it works? or No, we what? don't know how. Yeah, I mean, it's a COX-2 inhibitor. It's an interesting. And, but but it's, nobody really completely understands how paracetamol works, I think. Yeah. Currently at Cornell, we're doing a, there's a clinical trial which we're doing. I'm a sort of a very small member of this clinical trial, but it essentially is looking at people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And this was a, um, uh, an anti-tuberculous drug called decycloserine. It had gone by the trade name ceramycin. And it had previously been thought of by serendipity to be actually opening up the, the glutamate NMDA channel. But what 
people have found is that it can be given at short time periods as a cognitive enhancer. And so what, what the trial we're doing is we're actually giving them about 45 minutes to an hour before their cognitive behavioral exposure treatment. They get this drug and or a placebo, and then they do their exposure treatment. So we're, we're actually going to see whether this works. This has been all been very well worked out by Mike Davis, a, a researcher at Emory University in rats. But this is one that had been initially been worked by Kerry Ressler to decrease phobias of fear of heights. But now we're going to do something much more complicated in looking at something that is, even, even though post-traumatic stress disorder is considered to be something that has elements of fear and anxiety, it's so much more complicated than that. And I think we're going to see whether or not this at least helps the, it's not, the, it's not monotherapy for the PTSD, but it's actually going to be used in conjunction with exposure mm -hmm. therapy. I think the, I mean, there's been a few meta-analyses recently that suggest the effects, like many things, you, you get an effect in the first study, right? Yes, the, the biggest effect. Now it's uh, <laughs> start to fall, starting to fall to apart. <laughs> yeah. So that'd be interesting to see what you get on that. You mean meta-analysis in the rodents models or in the humans? No, in humans. Uh, a lot of um, Stefan Hoffman and uh, yes. Mike, Michael Lotto at, at BU uh, yeah. have done a lot of that stuff. Exactly. It seems that the things that don't work for decycloserine are things like um, snake phobias. Like if you if you have a if you have some type of uh, certain phobias are not as amenable to this. <clears throat> but again, we don't actually know where this works. Mm -hmm. There have been some studies that suggested affects both the amygdala, whatever um, firing rates in both the amygdala and also the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's been as clearly mapped out unless I've missed some paper. Yeah. But that would go along with representation, right? Meaning yes. the significance of, yes, which is a, a, a prefrontal concept. Or I still even say that because I'm arguing against that whole concept. But. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to take a moment. And I have a new book out called uh, Anxious. So it's a little promotion there. Yeah. But, um, in the in the book, um, one of the things I propose is that you know that because the, the if, if, in fact, the conscious experience of fear is distinct from these more basic threat processing circuits, um, we might profitably approach exposure therapy by directly attacking the amygdala, independent of conscious awareness, by using subliminal presentations of the CS, of the, the spider, or the snake, or whatever, and reduce the amygdala's responses yeah. outside of consciousness, then do conscious exposure therapy, Yes. And then do psychotherapy mm -hmm. to help the person yeah. cope with the situation, kind of a three-point plan. So right. What do you think of that? As a uh, look, I think that's potentially terrific. An analyst would either, after you're done or before or instead of, ask the question, why is this person afraid of spiders? Do they have a traumatic history with spiders? Many don't. Right. What do spiders mean to them? If you will, what is the what activates the affect circuit? What's the affect meaning? And then get the story of that, so that the person themselves, in a certain other circuit, cogn more cognitive circuit, understands something about the symbolic representation spider, and may deal with the actual elements of what they are afraid of behind the spider image. That is crucial. Suggestion is a very, very powerful tool. So you can change things by suggestion, yeah. the equivalent of placebo. So 
Ed, placebo is a very powerful thing. You can see it in the brain. You're changing the terms of the discussion from is there meaning to how do you know the meaning and does the meaning work. I was addressing only that there is a symbolic representation. That's all. But if you take anybody, any student that comes, and you put them in a magnet, and you show them subliminal images of snakes, Mm -hmm. you'll see they're all fear secretory that lights up. Do you think it it's, has the meaning to them? Do you think the, the snakes, the fear of snake, it's coming because of a meaning? Or um, do you think it's just something? Yeah, don't that, you think that, that people feel, oh my god, the snake might bite me or get inside me? Or, you yeah, they don't know it's there. No, you rapidly show it. Okay, now we're talking about the analyst view of the unconscious. They don't know it's there. Yes, that's right. The whole analytic theory of human mental function and neurotic pathology is that there are aspects of meaning of it of which we're not aware. And all of the analytical literature on techniques, it talks about how to make that unconscious conscious. Maybe it's baloney, maybe it doesn't work, maybe it's just placebo, different question. The idea, however, the analytic idea is human meaning is there and may be unconscious. So, I mean, no, yeah. but my point no. is not that. My yeah. point is exactly. you show right. snakes to anybody, right. and anybody will have these reactions. Right. Because to of the meaning sense. of snakes. So you mean that you, you think everybody has a problem with snakes because no. of their history? No, I, no, no, I, no, no, I, no. Everybody's afraid of falling. But the falling is conceived of representationally. It's not just stimulus reflex. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. But what I understood no. this to be would be that Joe was throwing out that there should be a clinical trial where you do treatment as usual or to add on top of yes. it this type of subliminal. Uh, no, but I think it's actually, normal. It's a normal reaction. That's that's we evolved. Of course, uh, representation having is normal. fears of things that are dangerous for us: snakes, spiders, heights, yeah. etc. Yeah. So I think that's that's a normal thing to have a reaction to when it becomes a problem that. Okay. interferes yes. with your daily yes. action, then it's a problem that you need to solve. But but yeah. otherwise, I think it's a normal thing that we have. It's like we see faces everywhere. Yeah. We are, we, we, we can see objects that look like a face. Yeah. And in 170 milliseconds, you will activate yeah. the areas of your brain that normally sees real faces <laughs> because you pre- okay. Yes, you know, that's, 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 you that's, that's all I'm saying. That's, that's the design. Yeah. Right. That's the design. Yeah, that's the design. Yeah, yeah. You can't. And, and, uh, and, and that's why babies orient to faces after just a few minutes of yeah. life because we have this subcortical system that orients us to things that are important for evolution. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that doesn't need to have extra you know, meaning. Yeah, no, no, I think it does you not. But we're be... saying the same thing. Meaning is innate to human beings. That's what no, we're saying. I think you need to be careful to put meaning to some of these things. I think you, with the way you are saying it, you are mean, putting meaning to everything, but you don't need meaning. In other words, the person who has the fear, the, the, who goes under these uh, imagings, and they all respond to snake fear. They don't have to, the snakes don't have to have any other meaning for them. There's no unconscious meaning to it. The only meaning is that uh, evolutionary, we are going to have to guard ourselves against snakes. Okay, Ed, we you're now reducing meaning. meaning to its minimalist significance, which is fine, but now you want to take a step further and say it has no meaning at all. Snake doesn't even mean snake. It's no, no, innate. It snake. Okay, so snake has a but meaning. that's snake only means because bad. we Thank have you. given it a name. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> it has given meaning it only because we've given it a name? I mean, in terms of meaning, if, if it's, Wait a, minute, if has it's meaning a dangerous only we've given it a name? animal, <laughs> we have to protect ourselves. 
So I would just go back to one of the things you said to kind of tie it into yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, the, um, You said the job of the analyst is to make the unconscious conscious. But if the meaning is wired into, say, the amygdala, yeah. there's no way to make that conscious. I mean, the, the circuitry, not? because the prefrontal cortex can't look at the amygdala and see what it's doing. You know, there's certain things that are but unconscious. Said, but but just yeah. <laughs> certain things that are unconscious because of wiring, not because of repression. Oh, no, that's right. But there are actual fibers from the amygdala to the precortex. We, I, I asked you about that. Right. And there are actual fibers back down again. No. And so, well, right? Not well, okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it one could inhibit the, one's amygdala responses. We do it all the time, right? Yes, we're good at inhibiting, yeah. but less good at, uh, I'm sorry, but the other way. The other way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's very, well, I mean, the, the, the asymmetry there is that it's very easy for the arousal of these emotions, whatever you want to call them, to uh, affect our conscious experiences. Yeah. But less easy for yes. our conscious experience to change our emotions, as we all know. Right. That's why you are in business. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> You're thinking. Well, something. no. I mean, so I would just add to that. So, I, I mean, again, I feel like this notion of meaning, ironically enough, turns out to be a semantic issue. So, uh, I, it might be helpful for some of us to understand what it would look like for something not to have meaning because the right. examples that I think I'm accustomed to seem intelligible in this kind of Darwinian context without needing anything additional. Um, but on this on this note about consciousness and so forth, I, mean, I think most of us sort of take the view that um, it's interesting. I feel like all of the discussion about the fear of dehydration has led to this moment right here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, you know, the one that I think that most people would agree that a signal feature of the mind, and this goes all the way back to the yeah. early work on split brain patients and so on, is that there's modularity. That is, there are systems that are isolated from each other, again, not in virtue of a suppression yeah. sort of, uh, but the fact is that, you know, uh, there's lots of stuff going on in our heads that mm -hmm. they just do the little things. Behind yeah. the you know behind the veil, and it's just fine that they do those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And I, I take it that that's why you get many of the effects that you do. And another way is just to bring this back to the very top of the conversation, which is, you know, if you sort of take that view, that uh, then the question of what <coughs> consciousness is doing. Now maybe it's a narrator along the lines mm -hmm. of Kazanaga and so on that's here to tell us stories. But that does bring me back to the point about rodents, which is that if you think that what's going on in terms of phenomenology and consciousness has to do with telling stories in the social world. Then critters that don't really uh, talk to each other, which is, you know, every other species more or less, roughly, mm -hmm. at least with natural language, uh, they wouldn't need that. Mm -hmm. um, and which, so one, one direction that does sort of point you is to make, it makes you think a little bit about if phenomenology has to do with the narrator, uh, then maybe it's something unique, uh, which again would then go all the way back to this discussion of what the animal research is, is telling us on yeah. these topics. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I'm reluctant to say it's unique because we don't know. But I would say that if, it, if animals have phenomenology, it can't be anything like what we have with language. I mean, as soon as, we, as soon as an experience begins to develop, we are labeling it and defining it and giving it meaning through yeah. our words and yeah. our history and our experiences. So, um, you know, we have 37 words in English for variants of fear and anxiety. Um, and... It must be that must be an important kind of uh, motion for us because we have so many words for it. Yeah. Just like Don't we have that many words for snow. Yeah. <laughs> so. We have that many words for snow too, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs>
And to go back to your um, not understanding the difference between fear and anxiety or not accepting it. Um, I mean, so I think the, the usual view, I'll state, state it as I know it, uh, which is that fear is an emotion that you experience when the threat is present or expected and imminent, whereas anxiety is a worry about something that hasn't yet happened and may never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, I know, I mean, once you start digging deeper into any of these distinctions, right. you find holes in them. Mm-hmm. So where, what are the holes? Well, if I, uh, I recently uh, saw that uh, the, you can have people uh, subliminally uh, do something and where they could cheat or not cheat, and subliminally affect their views about right or wrong and religion. And uh, if you put in the ideas about religion, they are more liable not to cheat. Now, is that anxiety or is that fear? Because what the idea is has to do with the notion of God. I would say it's neither. So God is watching. So <laughs> neither. No. So God is watching you, and God wants you to do the right thing. So uh, is that fear or is that anxiety? Well, but I, th- I mean, are you saying only the religious people went in that direction? The pe- no. The, when they introduced religious ideas, yeah. and the, uh, subliminally, I- the people cheated less. Because right. of the notion of right or wrong and the fear of God, than when they didn't. So let me give you. A, a t- let's change the no, example. But, so, no, but Ed, you're not going to know unless you ask the person. <laughs> no, you won't. That will need. Now we're back to the movie projector in the movie, Ed. <laughs> no, we're not. Yes, we are. No, 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 no. If if you if you think about fear of anxiety, you yourself. I like when that. You if you speak think about, about it, it, that's no, the point. No, if but you when you, when if you, you have speak about it, it, mental. When you speak about it, you are going to use in certain situations the word fear, when in fact, with the definition that uh, Joe gave, you should be using anxiety. Not necessarily, Any you situations, have to ask the person. No, that's not yes. the point. No, no, it's not important. Okay. An analyst says, <laughs> ask the person how they experience that. Some people experience God as a living presence. I'm going to go back to the experiment. Yeah, not, not what we are referring to. So let's go back to the experiment. So I can give you a very similar experiment, but it has nothing to do with God. Um, John Barge, who uh, used to be at NYU, yeah. now at, at Yale, did studies at NYU where he brought in participants in the study and had them unscramble um, the blocks of words. You know, they had to reassemble words and sentences from blocks. And so there were two kinds of uh, sentences that were scrambled like this. One kind had to do with uh, you know, sentences about old age, and another kind had to do with just random things, nothing about old age. And the, these were all undergraduate students. And so the students who unscramble sentences about old age took longer to walk down the hall afterwards than the other <laughs> Just as a side so, I, mean, I wouldn't call that fear anxiety. It's, un- it's activating you yeah, know, non-conscious But That's a different, that's a different example. Yeah, but I have another one. Good. But wait, let's finish. <laughs> let me just finish with, with that. So the, you know, you had, in your study, they were um, responding to, they were being, what were the stimuli again? 
I don't remember the details. I read this some time ago, but it had to do with when they were when they subliminally introduced ideas, religious right. ideas. Okay. Then the cheating was less. So we have these non-conscious schema mm -hmm. that are kind of sitting there with the classify information as it comes in before it reaches consciousness. So you can activate these schema with probes or primes like religion, mm -hmm. old age, mm -hmm. uh, blah, blah, blah. And then that becomes part of your conscious thought process because you've been primed to do that. It's a yeah. classic priming thing which happens unconsciously but bleeds into to consciousness. Mm -hmm. so I don't think it has to do with fear. Joe's talking about unconscious no, so, schemas, which we call representation. He's got a much more complicated view of the mind than you do right now. No, that's not that. Uh, that doesn't solve the the problem of the distinction between fear of anxiety. No, but, but that, that was a sidetrack. That's, a, that's <laughs> a different that's example. Issue. No, no, but he's saying that's not the issue. Ed. It's more complicated than that. No, that's I don't what he's know. saying. I, I don't know what you mean by more complicated. What I'm saying is. There are many definitions and many attempts at distinguishing fear and anxiety, and I don't find that there are any of them that are foolproof. Because you're looking and at you the definition. And you yourself, when you were talking about it before, you said fear and anxiety. Because right. if it were possible to make as clear a distinction as between fear and something else, we wouldn't have this discussion. Well, so there's obviously a fuzzy zone. There is something them. fuzzy about that distinction. Right. It's not and a it's question important of in psychoanalysis. But it's not a question of definition. You won't find the answers in words and in epistemology. You have to find the answer in the mental experience, and Joe has shown in the brain. Well, of course you have to find the okay. answer in the brain. So you can't argue that any definition has holes in it, because that's not the point, of course. Any definition of anything does. It's the mental experience and you're, its neurophysiology. You're totally misunderstanding. Suppose we work backwards from the We're concept. We're not talking about definitions in work, that way. Work backwards from worry. You are, not me. Oh. Okay. I wonder what about fear being acute and anxiety being more chronic. Well, that's one of the others. Well, yeah. that's the same thing that we're talking about, that fear is a response to an immediately present yeah. stimulus. Anxiety is a worry yes. about the future. But suppose we start with worry and say that threats that we worry about are anxiety, hmm. but when the threat is present, it's fear. No, yeah. So let's say you are sitting alone at home, yeah. and you suddenly start thinking, what if I'm alone and somebody breaks in? Yeah, that's anxiety. And then you go and you check the door double, make sure it's double locked and so on. Is that fear that's or anxiety. is that anxiety? anxiety? So for you, the temporal element is, yeah, is supreme. So, I, so on this kind of view, I can't fear that something is about to happen to me. I can be anxious about it. If it's imminent. So if, if for example, a rat in a box. Well, let's forget rats. So let's say that you... Every time you touch this bottle, you get an electric shock. So, that happened, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, even though you're not touching it, you know you're going to get shocked. So you're, you, know, you would say that you're afraid because it's there. Um, whereas anxiety would be you're, the next time you come here, you're worried that there might be a bottle that will shock you if you come in. Here. I mean, can't we just settle this by fiat, right? So we're scientists, right? Don't we get to decide what words mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah. well, why don't we just say, like, I think yeah. you know, the problem with that is that we get, when we do that, I mean, that's what Byfield did a long mm -hmm. time ago. It decided yeah. fear was a non-conscious or non-subjective state, a motivational physiological state that connects threatening events with responses. Mm -hmm. um, 
but they called it fear and they use it to try and help people feel less fearful or anxious and explain fear and anxiety in people. So when, as soon as you do that, you're out of the non-subjective and into the subjective and mm -hmm. nobody makes a difference. So people will go to the Society for Neuroscience has a thousand posters on yeah. freezing rats and talking about curing anxiety in people. Right. So I think we have to be very careful when we redefine things scientifically. When we take common language words and redefine them scientifically, we cause ourselves, we open ourselves into trouble when we're talking about things that every day people experience. In well, let me, yes. let me ask you my terms then. So again, as a, as a Darwinian guy, my <clears> guess <throat> is that what you're really ultimately going to be pointing to are systems that have different functions. So mm -hmm. one function might be, you know what, I need to incubate about something that might happen because that's going to help me down the road. So I think <clears> we all agree that a certain amount of anxiety isn't such a bad idea because yeah. it potentiates planning for those eventualities or supposed yeah. threats. So one kind of a system would be a, a, a forward-looking system that right. maybe simulates something which might be threatening. Another one is a system that's designed to take appropriate evasive action uh, given what has happened in the past. And that, of course, fits with some of the learning stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so if we start to carve the world in terms of functions instead of by fiat, right. do you feel like that might get us in a productive direction? Would that satisfy your friends at the society? What I would say is anxiety is a, a byproduct of the fact that we have a brain that can imagine the future. Mm -hmm. And right. so you don't think it's you, so a byproduct. So in my world, since we're talking about semantics, so in my world, that means you think it doesn't have a function that it's sort of non-functional. Well, it's it's it has a function once it exists. I mean, but the but reason it it's not there in virtue of the fact that it did some particular job. Right. You're saying anxiety. Oh, it's really. Yeah. I mean, I find that remarkably unlikely, but, uh, you know, well, so, uh, you know, your, your ability to imagine how to uh, build a building is not that different from your building ability to imagine that that building is going to fall down on you. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, I mean, it seems to me uh, we could have we could have the ability for this kind of planning with respect to building in terms of uh, that could be an artifact manipulation system mm -hmm. like that's working mm -hmm. memory allows me to think hey what if I strung the bow this way mm -hmm. um, whereas but I mean it could be a different system although it makes mm -hmm. use of some of the same components where I think about what are all the things that might go wrong that maybe I should plan for so for example maybe I should make my buildings with stuff that makes them less dangerous or mm -hmm. unlikely that whatever um, so it seems like Certain kinds of anxiety, it seems to me, uh, like you wouldn't want to suppress all kinds of anxiety. So Randy Nessie, who is the only psychiatrist I sort of know, lives in my world, and he has this example where, you know, if, if you're a mouse and you have, ang if you get anxious every time you smell, you know, feline urine, and then so you scurry away. That's kind of a good. That's kind of a good thing. You I would wouldn't say want a the mouse is not anxious. The mouse. Uh, so he's not anxious yeah. at all. Right. I see. But you certainly wouldn't want no, to give him any having a threat response, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, he's, he's I mean, how would you distinguish anxious? his? behavior from a subjective state. I mean, the only mm -hmm. way we can do that in people is to ask them. Mm -hmm. like, but well, yep, of course, yep. people can lie. <laughs> they can, but, you know, at least we... And, they, and in fact, your work shows they can be wrong, right? So all the split frameworks... That's not the point. The point is that in humans, we're all operating with the same kind of brain. But when we go to another animal, they're operating with a different kind of brain. Mm -hmm. And the way the human brain is different isn't exactly the, the circuits and so forth that... Um, allow us to experience our world. Let me put it a different way. If you could get, eliminate everybody's anxiety about everything, would you do that? No. Well, no, absolutely not. Anxiety is, you know, it, again, it allows us to anticipate the future, which can be very useful to us in many ways. And that's the value of anxiety because it allows us to uh, try to charge the brain up a bit 
and work on the future in a way that makes mm -hmm. it important rather than just, oh, mm -hmm. something is going to happen in the future. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's sort of what I think too, but I would say that that's why we have it in the first place. Now you and I can disagree about how it came about, but it's sort so of that would just say that how it came about may be a spandrel. Maybe. So that you have the capacity to imagine the future. And when that is associated with brain arousal and other things like that, that becomes worry. And what about pathology then? So if it's true that the system by and large does a pretty good job, can't we, can we think about <laughs> cases of pathology, social anxiety, fear of heights, and spiders? So for example, all these things, you should sort of have some of that. I mean, even mm -hmm. here in New York City, right. you ought to be, I guess, one of the snakes But you here. don't want to have something that will actually make you stay in your apartment. Yeah, right. So that just means that's, that's what I'm getting at. So yeah. there's like a setting that gets yeah. slightly altered, yeah. right? Mm. Well, maybe, again, maybe you should stay in your apartment. Right? I mean, I don't live in New York City. So <laughs> well, I just imagine threats right. from all corners when I'm here. Um, so it seems like the pathology then is do something that's useful, but to set to a kind of a high or too low level, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but it was... But Psychiatrists are very simple-minded people. So all we, all we, if if they don't leave the apartment, we know something's wrong. If they can't go to a job, we know something's wrong. So it's a very simple bar. If, if if it's gone to the level where you can no longer function in society, or it significantly limits your ability, that's something that it, it does not seem to be giving you any evolutionary advantage. <laughs> And that's when you try to give some medication whose mechanism of action we don't understand to that person. <laughs> so are you saying to have anxiety as opposed to fear, you have to have cognitive function, or you are saying it's true of both? I think cognitive function is required for both. Exactly. But to have a threat is a matter of whether the threat is present or worried about yeah. in the future. Yeah. But a response to a threat does not require that. No. Exactly. Just my opinion. <laughs> so that, in essence, uh, what your work is saying is that you can still respond and protect yourself without having the cognitive component right. of it. And that the 50 years of work done in rodent models in particular have been studying that type of threat defensive response. And that's important because it's part of the, you know, if, if this is correct, we need to treat different systems in the brain differently. Exactly. We have to approach yep. psychiatry from the point of view of the way the brain exactly. is wired. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's important to have drugs that will change behavioral inhibition. I mean, behavioral inhibition is often equated with anxiety, and I think that's you know, part of the problem. We use these words and the semantics of it get us kind of lost in space and mm -hmm. confuse things by using the same word for different things. Yes. Mm -hmm. But you're right. If you, in what you're getting back to what you were saying, in the future, if you could develop either a behavioral probe or some magical nanoparticle that would just go straight to getting to the threat and tamp down a person, who, a psychiatric patient who had an, an overactive threat response system, yeah. then you might then, it would allow that person to actually go into psychotherapy, for example, and then work right. on the, yeah. the, but the other component. Yeah. That probe would probably affect the same circuit she was asking about exactly. that are involved in positive uh, responses mm -hmm. to stimulants. Yes, exactly. Oh, but exactly. through behavioral interactions with yes. the patient, like through uh, uh, exposure of specific stimuli, you could be more specific. Yeah. I think that, you know, that psychiatry has much more to gain through behavioral than pharmaceutical approaches. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of stunning that 
our pharmaceutical agents have worked at all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've given us serotonin reuptake inhibitor that essentially blocks all serotonin reuptake in the entire body. Well, <laughs> There's some studies that show say, that it doesn't actually work. When you but, look at the meta-analysis, that actually yeah. looks yeah. very closely mm, whether yeah. it works Close or to not. placebo. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, as my, co- my one of my colleagues, he's, he's, a, he's a, also a psychiatrist, but also a neuroscientist at Stanford, he goes, psychiatrists have, have used the placebo effect to maximal benefit. <laughs> Whenever well, we give a great thing it doesn't, if it doesn't have side effects, like yeah. most of these exactly. drugs have. I mean, I'd yeah. rather have people be cured with, you know, yeah. sugar pills yeah. as a placebo than with these things that have all these terrible side mm-hmm. effects. Exactly. Uh, exactly. That, that, some of these really though do work, though, right? Like some. Maybe. No, I think. That, <laughs> well, well, my colleagues, I conceptualize is that thirty years ago, forty years ago, when they were first introduced, the people who had the most severe untreated depression. These probably did. These were you got huge effect sizes, and then what you notice is that the effect sizes kept on getting smaller. But so that there is some subset of the depression syndrome, at least that that responds to these. But that we don't have those patients anymore because they're all on these drugs. So that hmm. everybody's on drugs. <laughs> I, I, I'll ask one more thing before we go to the audience. Um, Eric had mentioned panic attacks before. So panic attacks are attacks that have to do with anxiety or with fear. Well, so, you know, there's a specific stimulus, like an interoceptive stimulus, twitching in the chest or chest pain. So you would say that that's a uh, a stimulus that is probably then making you anxious, and then that's causing a feed-forward loop. That's if they don't always exist. That that what you just said is not but always. in that case. I mean, I mean, the, you know, the the truth is that let's just accept that for the purpose of this, accept what I had described as fear and anxiety. But as soon as you're afraid, it morphs into anxiety, right? So there's a snake at your feet. So you have first your your fear of the snake, but immediately you begin to worry about, is it poisonous? Will it bite me? Can I get to the hospital? Will they have the antidote if I die? Will my family be okay? On and on. So that's where I draw the distinction. The snake is there. You have that rapid autonomic nervous system response, and then you kick into worry, and that takes you forward. It would be very hard to make that distinction in, in, in to, to somebody who has the snake. Immediately, their thoughts goes those ways, right? So it's inevitable, in a way, in those situations for one and the other to coexist. Right. But you could also start with a, um, uh, you know, with anxiety, and that, you know, perhaps could uh, how could uh, morph into fear. No, that could morph into fear. Yeah. Sure. And no, somebody who's anxious of crossing a bridge, you take their hand and you go towards the bridge, they start getting pretty afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Next yeah. thing to know, they leave your hand and run the other way. <laughs> well, Ed also gave an example where anxiety morphs into fear. Maybe, did I lock the door or not? Then the person gets up to check whether they locked the door or not. I don't want to go to the event, but... Something I found very interesting, you talk about the pharmaceutical approaches and you talk about maybe more of the phenomenological approaches or experiential. When you talk about drugs like hallucinogens, those seem to combine both of those properties. They're both biological and they're seemingly very intense and and experiential. Um, 
does this interest any of you or um, how that's how these drugs both combine these experiences and yet they're not studied as often as the I think there's a lot of work now oh, on using yeah. Like yeah. Four papers on, on LSD that came out in the last two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What, yeah. what about? Uh, the whole brain connectivity under LSD. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. yeah. But as a therapeutic tool, too, a lot of yeah. Uh, yeah, stuff is happening. I don't know. You mentioned LSD in, in book. I did? You, <laughs> <laughs> you recommended it. <laughs> and also, um, th there is a, um, one, a decade ago, we would not be having this conversation, but that now one of the most important or most highly studied drugs for depression is ketamine. Because okay. it is, and that in order, and the idea for the way ketamine works is that they, there is the belief that you have to actually have this sort of dissociative experience in order for it to be effective. So this pharmaceutical industry have made ketamine-like drugs that don't have this dissociative experience, and which have fewer side effect profiles, mm -hmm. and none of them work as well. There's mm -hmm. something that they think is magical about there's some big news on ketamine this week that just came out, a new study showing that its yeah. effects are due to some metabolic... Uh, exactly. So yeah, the, it was the one of the metabolic, so metabolites of ketamine that was actually affected. Yeah. And the idea that yeah. the, the, the main target for ketamine had always been thought of one glutamate receptor subtype called the NMDA receptor, mm -hmm. and now they think it's the other subtype called yeah. the AMPA. So the metabolite might be the active hmm. version of it, mm -hmm. but, uh, but these are all rat studies. So we, no one has yet... I, the human studies are ongoing right now. Mm. So it's not clear whether or not that causes, the metabolite might not cause a dissociative effect. That's mm -hmm. the key. Mm -hmm. yeah. Actually, I, um, there's there's studies uh, going on at both NYU and Johns Hopkins, at least um, I read about it last spring on psilocybin, where, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but um, with people who are uh, in um, people with cancer, who are dying and have death anxiety, uh, they've been taking they've been taken on psilocybin trips, <clears throat> and the images that they've been encountering help eliminate the anxiety. And apparently, um, the anxiety after six months is still not there. So I don't know if you're familiar with that study, but it just goes to um, the other questioner. Thank you. So first of all, I just want to say, Mr. Ledoux, you got a little Matthew McConaughey in your voice when you speak. Uh, well, I'm from Louisiana. I think he's from Texas. So the, the, the thing that you talk about the you know the circle thing. The thing that I have a question about is, um, and maybe this isn't the appropriate way to ask it, and maybe it's a simplistic way to view the mind. But my question is whether or not. Uh, minds that are considered creative or logical have different uh, effects in, in the feeling of anxiety and fear. For example, somebody who might be considered more creative, a creative thinker, having more experience of anxiety than fear in a logical thinker because of the eminent threat, right, going on the, the definition of time, having um, the effects right in front of them. So I'd just, I'd just be, or the, the uh, the threat right in front of them. So I'm just curious about your perspective um, on the kind of the, du the duality of the brain in that sense and its effects on fear and anxiety. 
I mean, I would say conceptually, it seems right that the person who is more creative and more imaginative and you know doing all these kind of anticipatory things uh, are separated, you know, that are not necessarily out there in the present world, uh, would perhaps be more prone to anxiety. But I don't know if that's actually the case. Psychiatrists would. Is that is that would you? I mean, is that a good way to? Look at it, or do you think it's it's flawed in in that sense? I mean, is it flawed to to think uh, with this topic uh, right or and left brain or logical? I think and that's flawed. Creative? Yeah, right and left brain. Mm -hmm. I mean that you know the the brain right and left comes from uh, primarily from like the split brain work and. There you have left and right for sure, but the in the normal brain everything is connected and crossing and integrated. And so while it's not appropriate to think about our hemispheres controlling different aspects of, of personality, there's, uh, that doesn't mean that we don't. Some people aren't more logical and others more spatial and imaginative or so forth in their personality traits. It's just not perhaps not uh, separated so neatly in terms of the brain. But maybe the, the way you can think about it is that if an anxious person manages to help their anxiety by being creative, that's a, that's a good way to, to deal with it. And constructive way to, to, right. to, to transform the anxiety into a positive thing. Okay. Didn't Gazaniga feel there were things from the right brain and from the left brain in non Separated hemispheres. Well, you know, we have to grow up and separate from our parents. Right? <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't language still a little language is not lateral? Has he changed? Has he changed his position? Um, yeah. I, he's not so left right. I mean, he's still you know he's got a little bit of connection to that, but he's not as strong as uh, he was. Uh, I mean, some functions are more left or more mm -hmm. right. right. I mean, face perception is more in the right, right hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Language is more in right. the left. Mm -hmm. But doesn't mean. Right. But it's because the causal connections are so huge right. and efficient and everything it's there is never anything that only happens in one side it stays there hi thanks a lot for this talk it's uh, been really educative um the 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 discussion that you guys were having about uh, fear and anxiety that's been going on in the literature for a long time i i you know and i know that you've been talking a lot about clarifying terminology i wonder if it wouldn't be better to talk about this rather as a stress response system and to look at it temporally because of the, the fact that we're really what we're talking about is, you know, the urgency of response and what level of the nervous system is going to trigger that response. So if you're in a dark alley and somebody touches you in the back, there's going to be an immediate response. Uh, <coughs> Uh, and the representation that's going to be dis uh, uh, there is going to be a very low-level reflex. And then the next level would be perhaps at the habit system, the habit level system. If you're a karate guy, you know, and you have developed these skills over the years, then you would have a more sophisticated representation of your response to that situation. And then, you know, if you're watching a movie of somebody being robbed, then. The, you're, you're able to access a higher level of representation and abstraction, and okay. you might ask whether he had a good relationship with his mother, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, he's, you know, robbing things. So I think the analysis you described is dead on, but I, would, yeah. I wouldn't call it a stress system because that's a whole other 
pile, you know, pile of baggage. And well, I, I, I'm sure that people have a more sophisticated or very specific way of talking about yeah. stress. But when you're talking about like the amygdala and stuff like that, you know, so much literature has been devoted to, you know, the fear response and things like that. But the amygdala is also uh, has a positive valence as well as negative valence. And when you uh, connect the amygdala with, and the extended amygdala with the, uh, uh, the periapical gray and the hippocampus, then you're, you've got a system that is uh, uh, addressing uh, different uh, uh, stimuli and classifying that and evaluating and, and then creating responses according to those schema. Right. My solution to that is to talk about defensive survival circuit or survival circuits, one of which is defense, others are dealing with other kinds of uh, biologically significant activities. So, but I think, it, you know, we're on the same page there. All right. Uh, my question, thank you. Yes, um, you mentioned the typical examples of uh, spiders and snakes in eliciting fear and or anxiety. And uh, wouldn't possibly be an altering factor be uh, and expertise and knowledge and being able to differentiate which ones are lethal and which ones aren't lethal uh, affect your reaction to it uh, because uh, only a small percentage of uh, snakes are, are in fact uh, you know, venomous and, uh, and, and, and those that aren't venomous that would be dangerous, you know, maybe the large constrictors and uh, as for spiders, uh, all of them technically have venom but only a few are potent enough to... Uh, to affect us, and then I know if I saw, I know if I saw a uh, the black widow spider or a brown recluse from the pattern, I would know, you know, that there were bad news. Or an tarantula, if it bit me, I'd probably experience something like a bee sting. But other than that, if I saw an orb spider, I don't think I'd, I wouldn't think twice about it. So I guess it was with that, would that could that alter someone's response? Or is, you know, I mean, that be as you guys can say better than me, but. The phobias are not uh, sensitive to information and logic. You know, so no amount of reasoning that this is not dangerous and this is is going to change their response to the snake, at least as I understand. Right. I want to say it's genetically encoded, like inevitable that you're going to be panic if you see something in, in, a, in a broad classification, even Wait. though it's not venom, even mm -hmm. though it's not dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's better to react too many times than to miss one time. So, so it's better to react to a non-venomous snake than than think, oh yeah, well maybe not, and and you know, so so we we are we are primed to have quick reactions to things of a category that are potentially. I just don't want to squander it on those are. I just like to reserve it for those things that could actually uh, harm me, and not yeah, yeah. waste that, that waste of uh, anxiety on something that's. Uh, that's yeah, but we, we're talking yeah. about things that are happening in, in in less than a hundred milliseconds. You don't have time to do all these, you know, thinking about does it have a cross on it or not. I'm just saying, if knowledge is accumulated over a period of time that you can recognize it instantly. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when in less than 100 milliseconds, yeah, can uh, it. it's also not that simple because there's lots of mimicry uh, among poisonous critters in nature, right? right? Yeah. So apismatic coloring, right? So that just means that if uh, I'm a non-poisonous snake and there's a poisonous snake that kind of looks like me, selection is going to favor me looking even more like the poisonous guy because the right. benefits I get from other critters being afraid of me. So uh, it's actually so. There's two things. One is there's a problem of maximizing expected value, which means false. You know, you do a lot of false positives and try to. Avoid Avoid misses, but the other one is mimicry really undermines these systems, and they move faster than uh, we probably do in terms of the selective history. It's a problem. But he does have a point about 
education helping with fear. And that's basic to human learning. Um, I have a, a question which may be a slight detour. Um, but I'm um, speaking as a layperson, and particularly a layperson in terms of the way in which um, most of the question is being addressed in terms of remedy, um, cause and remedy. And um, so my question is really about fear as not what happens to create fear, but what happens when we have fear. And is so various questions, related questions um, about that. What is that? What's it doing? What does it do? Is it bad? When is it good? Can it be used? What happens when conflicting fears come together? What does that feel like? And what does that make us do? And um, also thinking about, uh, this is uh, I kind of sidetracked to the sidetrack, um, talking about fear as temporal. I'm thinking we can imagine the present too. We can be in a present situation. And obviously, we don't necessarily know everything about the situation that we're in. And it may be an ongoing situation or a situation that's not like a, the appearance of a snake. So it can be something that goes on for half an hour, hour and a half, whatever. Um, and so what's our imagination about a situation that we're actually in, which is not necessarily a bad thing? Um, and I'm not, again, not talking about necessarily the remedial. Speechless. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think probably we agree with what you're saying, that there's a complex series uh, that one can't substitute for another. We, we got into that discussion about the snake automatically triggering the neurophysiology very rapidly of fear, but whether that is fear or what we mean by fear and the higher cortical representation of that, uh, which doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. Uh, and it doesn't always mean that that happens. They're actually related but different. And so when you're describing different categories of complexity, essentially, I think most of us sitting here would say right on. But I think maybe the essence of my question is um, about whether fear can be good and what we can do, for example, about going inside fear rather than necessarily going to the solution of getting rid of it. Yes, I think I think all of us would agree from the adaptive to the psychoanalytic. Right. I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you imagine what it would be like for our ancestors who felt no fear, they were not our ancestors because they're dead. They got yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they got were bitten by snakes. They got bitten by a <laughs> yeah. snake, or they were sticking their hand in fire, or whatever they were mm -hmm. doing. It didn't work out so well. So you know, there's no doubt, uh, at least not in my mind, um, yeah. that fear is a very functional part of the architecture. We need our fear. Yeah. Right. Um, and not just that, but it's got to be complicated because there's lots of things that are threatening to people. Uh, there's pathogens, and there's other people and there's big cats and, uh, you know, over evolutionary time, there were lots of ways that you could come to an end. I mean, we're really complicated. And the thing about complicated things is if you just perturb them a little bit, they become damaged and no longer able to work, right? So to keep us healthy, you got to do all this cool stuff. But to disable us, all I need is a little ice pick and I'm done. I mean, it's really simple to disorder very, you know, complicated systems. So fear is basically the way to say, look, here's a thing in the world that could damage me, could harm my fitness interests, and then motivate me to take appropriate action. Now, for some reason, we have phenomenology associated with that. 
maybe we don't need that. But at least insofar as the reactions to the stimuli, those are definitely good for us. And yes, if you were insufficiently afraid, then you would be in, in, in big trouble. Um, and the other way too, right? So some of the clinical, our clinical friends can tell us about the dangers of being too afraid of the world so that you stay in your apartment, uh, which here I'm understanding is very small, uh, which is a great reason for everyone to move to Philadelphia. Anyway, um, uh, so so sure. And then if you're asking about the phenomenology, I mean, I, I think that's a hard question. Why does it feel like something to be afraid? I, I think you could ask that of why does it feel like something to be anything? Um, and that's that's hard. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things that we've heard here, especially Joe and others' work, has spoken to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I'm, I'm still uh, hearing the remedial, even inside the embracing of the fear. But okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for uh, letting us listen in. Um, I have a question that I I hope kind of ties things together because it has a couple of components of things that have come up. And one of them is, um, let's say, last night I had a dream of falling. And one of the things that we talked about was mice, and one of the things we talked about was humans. But we didn't really talk about the in-between very much in terms of the complexity of brains and processes that can happen. My understanding, or at least I think that there's some question that that dream of falling comes from great ancestors back in the day. And to me, that would seem like something that's anxious. And so I wonder about anxiety and fear and primates and things that are more advanced, though they don't have a clear language, but they have some form of communication. How much information has been garnered from that kind of study? Well, because we can't ask them, we have to just go on their behavior. And so when we're looking at behavior, if depending on how close we want to stick to the data, we can describe it in terms of their threat responses or the responses to danger and uh, leave it at that. Or we can speculate about things that we can't prove, which would be to say that there's a state of fear that intervenes between processing of the threat and the control of the responses. So... At this point, it's a matter of where, what your comfort level with is and what your approach to the science of it is, is to whether you want to put that subjective experience in the middle of the responses when we know from human studies that you don't need that experience in order to get some of these responses. The, the dream of falling comes in to the me dream, because I'm it seems turn over it's to like a company. very <laughs> cognitively up there sort of thing. And so to me, I do think that that's something that you know, animals, I mean, I watch my pets dream and they twitch and whine and I imagine they have anxiety when that happens and fear. I just, it's so, I don't want to try to separate the two. So I go home every day, I pet my cat and he purrs and I think he's feeling good and so we're good together and that's fine. But when I'm in the lab, I can't allow myself that kind of uh, supposition. So you can feel whatever you want about uh, the the interesting thing about animal dreams is, you know, they did these studies where they would cut the thing that when you dream, you're paralyzed when you, and, and you can, but, but if you cut that and you let the motor system work in cats, you can see that the cat is rehearsing everything that makes a cat a cat. I mean, they attack, they hiss, they, they, they mates, they have all these, these dreams that, that sort of uh, reinforce all the circuitry that, that uh, is important for their species. So I think that uh, animals do dream, but I think it's rehearsal of, of, of 
things that happen in the days. And, and is that also true of humans? I don't think any IRB has approved that experiment. <laughs> but wait, there's a separate question. The question is, do you think that, that one function of human dreaming might very well be to practice the sort of things that we as humans... Yes, if you ask people what they dream about, that's a significant proportion. Mark, can we get your uh, input on this? Although we can't, um, as you say, we can't... Can't make the same cut in humans uh, severing locus ceruleus from the alpha uh, motor neurons. There is a naturally occurring condition, REM behavior disorder, which is due to a degenerative process in the midbrain, which is sort of roughly the same area. And uh, so we do have humans who act out their dreams. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, if you go with your statement that what the cats do is everything that makes them a cat. Um, what humans do is mostly aggressive, um, very, very <laughs> aggressive, to the point not, that it is pretty dangerous to your sleeping partner if you have REM behavior disorder. So. <laughs> it's better if you're single, then. <laughs> maybe it makes you aggressive to have REM behavior disorders. <laughs> or maybe we come from an evolutionary history that turned on a lot of aggression among our species. Mm. Oh, there's more yeah. questions. I didn't realize. Yeah. Um, I think we've pretty much resolved the issue that anxiety is a necessary part of human mental experience, and we would be in bad shape if we didn't have it. Um, one thing that also is specifically human is superego anxiety. So I'm wondering if there's been any attempt to study what circuitry might be involved when some kind of stimulus that stimulates superego anxiety as opposed to just something like a snake. Can you um, describe what, what that would be? Yes, what Ed said about the religion being, yes. you read religion it, it and was, then you don't Right, see. it was Ed's question that actually got me thinking about this, whether there would be some way to elicit that kind of response by showing a stimulus that has to do with something that would arouse a superego response, like seeing something like torture, right? Um, and I'm just wondering if there's been any study of pathways that would be so specifically human that would have to do with anxiety. Um, I don't know anything, but that could, could be there. The, the only thing that I know that's getting slightly close to that is an experiment that we've done, and it's not published yet, but uh, we had uh, MIT students take an oath and then have an experiment, do an experiment where they could cheat or not, mm -hmm. and they would make money. And uh, those who were under oath, and it was not to a god or anything, it was to, the, to their university. And uh, first they cheated less, and when they were losing money because they were telling the truth, the whole actually reward system was going up. So it was rewarding to lose, lose <laughs> because you were under oath and you had sworn not to cheat. So that's the, the, the that's only great. thing that can get that's that's close to that. That's that, a good that thing about the, some humans. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you folks succeeded in arousing quite a number of thoughts and uh, questions in my mind. Uh, but let me start with a thought uh, experiment. Can you imagine that you are a GNU and that you are migrating in the Serengeti in Africa? And suddenly you look around and you see many other GNUs are running like crazy. So you, you join and run. 
Now, uh, you have not been, not been frightened by a snake. Uh, you have not been told uh, something is dangerous. There's you been, been no communication. Nobody has said anything. So, uh, and another a a a matter about it is that these news, although they may be, uh, especially if they're old and wounded, uh, they may be susceptible to being attacked by lions or other things, uh, but they have probably survived uh, many more generations because they don't live, live as long as humans, but quite a long time uh, without speech and without, uh, without fear and without anxiety, or at least if they have it, that we don't know about it. And as a matter of fact, there are other species which have been around much longer than that, like turtles. Turtles have been around for a long, long time. So uh, the question of what is the use of consciousness and uh, fear and anxiety and all the attempts we make to make distinctions, uh, wh wh what good is it? <laughs> that's, uh, that's one thing. Uh, second, uh, s second point. Uh, is about uh, the uh, placebo effect. Now, uh, what do we know about the placebo effect? Uh, when I was a, a fellow in, uh, in, uh, after my psychiatry residency, I worked with, uh, with Mort Reiser. Uh, it was a period when uh, psychosomatics was changing from being explained by Freudian concepts like an ulcer is what happens when you incorporate your mother and she bites you in the stomach. Uh, and it changed to what are the physiological accompaniments of, uh, of, of hypertension and so on. And we did a little funky experiment, uh, which uh, was that we, we just uh, got some subjects and we put them on a couch and uh, we had them look at a light that flashed, a subliminal flash, just so that you'd know that there was a flash. There was nothing in it. Other people were trying to des describe how, uh, let's say, a rebus uh, in, a, in, in such a thing could stimulate thoughts, fantasies, and so forth. We just asked these people to uh, close their eyes after they had seen this light and let, so let something come to mind, some picture come to mind, and then they could draw it and then they could tell, give it a title. And uh, we came to a conclusion, which is not so re uh, remarkable, that the main effect of the uh, experiment had to do with how they conceived of it and what their relationship was to the experimenter. And some people, well, the activation uh, was, I think, kept me out of the army in the, at the time of the Vietnamese War because I think that the CIA discovered that this had something to do with uh, lie detector tests because we, we used skin resistance, among other things. And you could chart this, and then you could compare with what they imaged and what they drew. And uh, one very impressive person, at least I was very impressed, drew a picture of Don Drysdale throwing a ball, and it was coming right to him. And this was going boom, 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 boom. And uh, then, uh, after, after a few minutes, uh, everything calmed down. And when we asked if he could remember what he had, what, what he had done, that was left out. He forgot it. He was a sort of a, went into a doze. After We were very curious about this, but we couldn't get refunded, so I gave up <laughs> the thing. But uh, 
you, you know, that this is that there is a negative uh, aspect of, of, of placebo effect also. And uh, it's also uh, it's been very, very uh, interesting to me that people say that we have to we have to compensate for the for the for the placebo effect because it may give a, a beneficial result when the drug isn't doing it and so on and so forth. But it also depends on how the experiment is set up, I would think, and how the person responds to it, whether it's positive or negative. And it's very important, of course. And it, but it also goes back to the other point about the uh, the GNU's. The uh, there is so much communication between animals and between humans, which is not on a verbal level, but which has obviously got complicated content and communications. Uh, and how we can uh, really learn by just depending on the words, what the report is of something. Now, the last week or a week before, I had a TIA. And I was sitting in a meeting with uh, some other, some colleagues, some psycho psychoanalysts from France. And I was uh, having a happy conversation with one of these people when it came about that I couldn't talk, I couldn't make words, I couldn't think of how to speak, and I just had to sit, sit, uh, sit there, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, I, and I must, but I must tell you, if you asked me how that felt, was I fearful, was I anxious? I wasn't fearful and I wasn't anxious. After it went away, and I started going to doctors, and they were going through all kinds of possible diagnoses and this and that. Then I got anxious. <laughs> okay. Uh, in retrospect, I knew that it was, uh, you know, it was somehow hazardous. But I mean, all of this is uh, churning around in my mind, and I thank you for it. Thank maybe, you. Maybe I'll do something. <laughs> thank you. Last question. <clears throat> so I um, also want to add my voice to come into a lot of these. I've been in a lot of these sessions. This was one of the best I've ever been to. This was, uh, I think, a really, really terrific uh, discussion. And I, I treat PTSD for a living. So I, um, nevertheless, I found that you were able to uh, manage to interest me as well as people who were you know, at all different levels of this. But there were two, just two very simple clinical observations. I, I don't feel comfortable. Uh, leaving this discussion without making the point that the, it's very common right now to talk about the placebo effect of SSRIs. And I have to completely agree with Francis, both from my clinical experience with about 10,000 severely depressed inpatients over a course of a lifetime and my own recurrent severe depressions, that SSRIs are incredibly effective when that. And it's really dangerous um, if we don't make that clear to people on the outside. Um, that what's happened is diagnostic creep, so that there are a lot of people who are on SSRIs who maybe wouldn't to be. But for severe depression, I don't think there's, I've just seen it too many times, seen it with other people and myself. It's a light switch, and it makes a huge difference, life-saving difference. And I think um, within the scientific discourse about, about that, we have to be clear, because there's already too much resistance to taking medication among people with severe depression, point one. Um, so uh, second point, point, point is that in treating lots and lots of PTSD patients, I found that one of the most, I do exposure therapy and things, but one of the most effective things that I've done is, that, and just sort of stumbled on this, is at the beginning of the whole treatment process, I will say to the patient, and usually these have been non-sophisticated, uh, psychologically non-sophisticated people, cops, firemen, metal workers, other 9-11 exposed people, I'll say, you know, 
the issue here is that um, your life, your feelings, and your behavior are run by a committee inside of your head. And you are not invited to committee meetings. And the goal of this is to get you invited to committee meetings. It's a very simple metaphor, but it's the metaphor about the non-unity of mind, which I think we have such an evolutionarily powerful drive to have a sense of unity of mind um, that when you tell this to people, it's an incredible sense of relief and an incredible new model for them. Thank you. Bravo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.